creation. You love all that you have produced, and Lord, you are redeeming it from the effects of sin. Lord, that Christ died, and one day he's coming, and he'll unite all things to himself, things above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth, God. And so we long for that day, Lord, but as we Lord, wait for it as we live here as sojourners in this world. We pray that we would be lights, um, lights of your kingdom, showing people that there is a better way and a new kingdom that's coming. Lord, I pray that you instruct us. Lord, make Christ glorious to us, Lord, our Savior and our example in Christ's name. We pray, amen. All right, onward into Matthew. If you turn to Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat, to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You, you, give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said to them, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And when he broke the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And when they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and left over, And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. This is the mercy of Jesus. If you see it, if you truly see Christ's mercy, it will challenge you. And if you've experienced it, truly experienced Christ's mercy in your own life, it will overwhelm you. It will transform you. Notice, it seems that Jesus is emotionally exhausted. Because we're told, right at this point, Jesus has just learned that his cousin John the Baptist was killed by Herod. So we went over this last week, but John was killed by a petty ruler who was more concerned with protecting his own skin, looking out for his own kingdom, getting ahead, staying ahead, trying to look good in the eyes of other people, a king who was sinful, a king that had given himself over to sensual cravings and took for his wife another man's wife, and because of all of this, he kills John. He murders John. So think about this. We all know the pain and the shock of someone dying in your life. You know it, and it it, it confounds you, and it jars you. But then add to it a layer of injustice. It was a state-sponsored murder. There's no recourse. Who are you going to turn to? The king killed him. Who are you going to appeal to? No one. So imagine 
the turmoil that news like this would bring. Then, add to it the fact that right before he learned that John the Baptist had been murdered, he had just been rejected from his hometown as Nazareth. Now, rejection is always hard, but I think the reason we hate rejection is probably different from the reason Christ feels rejection. Like We get rejected like, people don't like me. Like, oh man, I thought you'd like me. Or, or you want to be, you want to be right. And it's like, no, 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 this is the truth. Like, hear me out. And people just reject your message, and you're like, fine, <laughs> fine. Uh, you don't recognize me as smart as I, I really am. But Jesus, his, his rejection is motivated by the fact that he knows that he is offering salvation. He knows that this is the good news to transform their lives. He knows that these are people that are hell bound, and they reject him. And, and then he experienced rejection his whole ministry. But, I mean, these are the people he grew up around. These are the people he knew. Think nostalgia. Think, like, you've been here for Tuna forever and ever, and you know people, and it's those very people that are rejecting your message. That cannot be easy. He knew those people. He loved those people. And they're perishing in their unbelief. I can imagine that Jesus is emotionally exhausted. He is a man, after all. So it says upon hearing the news about John, he gets onto a boat, he sets his trajectory for a desolate place, and it seems like he didn't even take his disciples with him. He just hears it, walks away, gets on a boat, heads out. He's getting away from the crowds. He's getting away from the disciples. He's going to a quiet place where he can be alone. I think parents get this, especially mothers. Right, where the kids are just pulling, 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 pulling. And at a moment, you, just, you hit this moment where you're like, I need to go hide in the bathroom. <laughs> or I'm going to go eat a bowl of cereal in the hallway where they cannot find me. Right? Suddenly, like, your hearing goes out. Right? I can't hear anything. Right? There's just these moments where you just, you're exhausted and you just need space. So it seems like that's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's going out. And no doubt, knowing Jesus' pattern, he goes in the wilderness to pray with his Father. He's going to get away and commune with God. Except, everybody's figured out where he's going. I mean, the Sea of Galilee, I mean, we call it Sea, it's not that, that big. And if, like, that's your, like, space, you totally know, like, all the places. Like, Jesus went that way. I bet you he's going there. And so, the people see him leaving. Jesus, where you're going, instead of maybe giving him some space and thinking, like, oh, man, that was rough news. They're like, we have needs, Jesus. And they, and they go on foot, and they're going around the sea. And then it seems like they're, like, telling other towns about it, too. The crowd's growing. By the time Jesus reaches the shore... There are 5,000 people plus waiting for him. If I was seeing that, if I was in the boat, I would flip my lid. Like, I would have been so upset to like, turn that boat around and try to head another direction. Like, no way. Like, I would be so upset. I'm exhausted. I'm burned out. Give me my space. But Jesus' reaction is exactly opposite of my reaction. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. He had compassion, not irritation, not frustration. He was moved. He looks at at people in their distress. 
the word the word compassion it's it's weak in English like compared to like what it says in the Greek. Uh, where do you feel your emotions? We say our heart, but like the only thing you ever feel in your heart is adrenaline. <laughs> like where do you feel your emotions in your gut? Like that's when something really hits you deep down inside. Fear, joy. It's usually like down in your gut area. Weirdly, we don't think about this too much. But the word is like he was moved right there. It's deep seated. This is genuine, down to the core, compassion to the depth of his being. That's the compassion Jesus feels for this this crowd of people who are pressing in on him with all their needs and, and wanting his attention and probably trying to cut each other to get to him. And he feels compassion for them. And then he sets his compassion into action. And that's what's called mercy. And he heals all the sick in the crowd. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Here is the love of God in display in Jesus Christ. This is a full day. Think about it. He was healing, teaching, left town. He gets in a boat by himself. He sailed across the Sea of Galilee, and he's healing and healing and healing. So at this point, no doubt, he is physically exhausted. He is emotionally exhausted. It is a long day. And now suddenly the disciples are on the scene. They weren't really there, but all of a sudden they're here. And it's the end of the day, and then they're thinking like, okay, Jesus, you need some space. Time out here. There's a reason this place is called a wilderness. Because there's no food. Maybe there's water. But like, obviously there's not enough food for everyone here. They say, Jesus, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, this, this, is, this is good advice. Like, this is practical, like, salt of the earth advice. This is exactly what you would have said. Like, okay, sun's going down. Let's go. Disperse. So imagine then the shock and surprise when Jesus says, they don't need to go away. Give them something to eat. Okay, wait, wait, wait. First of all, first of all, you mean Jesus wants the crowd to stay. They, they want to be with Jesus, and Jesus says, it's okay. I want them to stay with me. And I, I, I don't know, Jesus, I just would have thought at this point, oh, wait, wait, wait. Did you say feed them? <laughs> feed them? Like, Jesus, that's a great sentiment. Very compassionate. There's no food. They need to go to town to get food. And Jesus says, feed them. I bet you, I bet. They first thought he was joking. I don't know if Jesus ever joked around. It doesn't really say. But there must have been this moment like, oh, you've got to be kidding. Ah, ha, ha, funny one, Jesus. But it seems clear that he's insistent on this. And then I can imagine there's this moment of frustration. Like, one of the things that drives me nuts, like, the thing, like, as a person that just really pushes my buttons is when I get asked to do an impossible task. Like, I get asked to do something, and I can't do it. I know it. Like, why did you ask me to do that? So frustrating. So, like, if I would have been a disciple, and he told me to feed him, I would just be looking at him going, Jesus, are you serious? Can I clarify something with you? You're obviously missing some information. 
we don't have the resources. Five loaves, two fish. Five loaves, two fish, and 5,000 people. We don't even have enough food for ourselves, much less a crowd. How could you be asking this of us? So Jesus says, five loaves, two fish, bring them to me. Because you see, what they've been asked to do by Jesus, he intends for them to complete. But he does not expect them to do it apart from the power of God. What Jesus asked his disciples to do, he intends for them to complete, but he doesn't expect them to do it apart from the power of God. So Jesus blesses the food, and miraculously the food multiplies far beyond its physical limits. And notice that though Jesus is doing the miracle, though he's providing the extra food, he still makes disciples go do it. He makes his disciples participate in the action. He doesn't say, yeah, you guys had no faith, let me just do it for you. No, he helps them in their moment of unbelief, the small moment of unbelief, and he, and he provides for them, and he still makes them go do it. Now, I would have been frustrated when he asked me, but suddenly when there's a bunch of food, I'm like, hey, 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 this is amazing. I probably was having a good time just passing out all this food that suddenly appeared. Like, it was probably an exciting moment. Think about it. And it says that they were all satisfied. And a point not to be missed, because Jesus is going to bring this up again in a few chapters, although we'll kind of discuss like why he brings this up a few chapters from now. But don't miss the fact that there are 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. In other words, they started with not enough food for even the disciples, but suddenly, not only did they have enough food for thousands of people, but God makes sure to provide 12 full baskets, one for each disciple. He provides for his crowds, and he provides for his disciples. Okay, so what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Now, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of ways you can think about this. And this gets referred to in many directions. We just read John, where later on, the same crowd follows Jesus, wanting more food. And Jesus says, you know you're missing something. <laughs> like, food is good, but better is the bread of life. Better am I than just getting your stomachs filled with food. There's that direction that he takes it. But if you just think of where, where he's at right now in this moment, hungry people, sick people, demonically oppressed people, and he's helping them in their misery, and he's helping them in their need. Jesus is feeding them because they're hungry. He's healing them because they're sick. Jesus cares about the whole person. So sometimes we reduce Christianity down to statements of doctrine or orthodoxy. What makes you a Christian? What makes you a follower of Jesus Christ? And you think, well, I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe that, and the Trinity, and all these different things. And that's good and necessary. But who are the spiritually mature in the eyes of God? Who, who are the ones that Christ looks at and says, yes, you are bearing fruit. Sometimes we reduce Christianity just down to a mere 
profession, saying, you know, why are you a Christian? Well, you know, when I was 13, I prayed a sinner's prayer, and then like six months later, I got baptized. I'm a Christian. And so, though probably true, that's not the evidence that you're a Christian, that you made a profession. Because Jesus just did that parable of the, the soils. Like, there are going to be people who profess Christ, who are excited about Christ, who seem like an all-outward appearance is to be a Christian, but they're not Christian. So that in and of itself is not necessarily enough. What is it that Christ looks at to say, yes, this is genuine belief? So now, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is certainly truth. There are things that we need to know, doctrines that are carefully and precisely laid out in Scripture. And God says about his people in Hosea, when they're about to go into exile, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So you need knowledge. You need truth. You need doctrine. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Quote, because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being my priest. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So you need to know things and you need to believe things for sure. But knowing things is easy. Doing them is harder. Satan knows more about God than any of us ever will on this side of glory. In terms of facts. Like, I bet you, if there's like a theological argument, Satan totally knows the answer, right? He just knows things about God that means nothing to him. He's wicked. Likewise, you can know a lot of good things about God. You could have given lip service about God. But if it doesn't change your life, it means nothing. There's not a single doctrine. There's not a single statement of truth in the Bible that is intended by God. I think I'm saying this backwards. Every doctrine, every statement of truth is intended by God to promote action. To promote action. Peter tells us in 2 Peter, God's divine power has been granted to us all that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through knowledge of Him. So turn it around. Knowing God, knowing what he says, it's meant to like come down into your life and affect your behaviors. So how does Jesus tell us that we have genuine faith, that we're actually bearing fruits? Let me read you something. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on the left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
And they say, when did we do that? And he says, as so much you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. He turns to the goats. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Those with genuine faith are those who upon seeing people in need and in misery are compelled to action like their Savior was. They're compelled to action. Who doesn't just say, as James says, you see someone in need in your own fellowship? They don't, they're poorly dressed. They don't have daily food. And you, you say, bless you. Be at peace. Love you, brother. Have a good week. Or I hope things get better for you. I'm praying for you. But you don't actually become the instrument of God's mercy in that person's life. Your faith is dead. It is not faith at all. Jesus cares about the hungry. Jesus cares about sickness. Jesus cares about injustice. Jesus cares about economic equality. That there's poor people in your midst. Jesus cares that there are those in society that are marginalized and are social outcasts, that are the people that people just don't want around. He cares about those people, and he cares about them. You read it on every page, in every chapter in the book of Matthew. You read it in every page of the Bible. How does God in Hosea, he says, you have forgotten my law. And what evidence does he bring? There are poor in your midst. There are hungry in your midst. There is injustice in your midst. You obviously are not listening to me. Jesus has compassion and mercy for those in misery. And Jesus expects his people to do something about it. And what drives Jesus to anger? This is what makes him mad. Self-content, self-absorbed, good people. Self-content, self-absorbed. Good people. The rich man of Lazarus. You remember the sermon? There's a rich man, there's Lazarus. The rich man was eating, feasting, fine clothes. And at his gate was a beggar who was so sick that the dogs could come up and lick his wounds. And both men die. And the rich man is in hell. Lazarus is in heaven being comforted. And I... I don't know, maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. Whenever I heard sermons on this, it's always about hell. Like, oh, look at, look at what all this tells us about hell. Hell, there's like this chasm, and there's like torment, and like he's, he's, he's able to know what's going on. And so, like, and it, granted, there, there are some like insights into hell. But if you go into the rich man Lazarus and just preach about hell, you've missed the point of why Jesus brought up the sermon, the parable, in the first place. He had been talking about money. He'd been talking about money, he'd been talking about money, talking about money, talking about money, and how Pharisees loved money, even though they looked like they gave money. How people were, like, enslaved to money. And then he ends it with, and a person who lives in riches, while there's people living in squalor in front of your own gate, and you're not moved to compassion and not moved to mercy. 
is not one of mine. So what we do with our money and our time, it's not just money, but with our money, our time, our resources, our talents, who we are as people, with what God has given us in this life, what we do with it when God puts needs right in front of us, says a lot about who we are. You can't miss this. This is in the Bible. It's everywhere. He, I think about the time he watches people put money in the offering in the temple, and this rich man comes and he just, you know, dumps a bunch of money in there. Lots of noise, probably coins. And everybody's like, "Ooh, lots of money." And then he watches a, a widow who's like destitute drop a coin. He said, "Who gave more?" Well, I can do math. The rich man, but not in the eyes of God. Because he's not necessarily concerned with how much they gave. I think he was concerned with how much they were keeping. Now, that being said, there is a priority system. The Bible lays out a priority system. And so I always have to be careful. Because like what we're doing here, because I know my own heart, and I hear Jesus says, give your life for people. And then he gives me a priority system, and then I'm like getting out of it because I just twist it <laughs> and make it good, a good excuse about why I'm not going to do the other things. But here it is. God gives you responsibility to your family, to your church, to society. Okay. And, and he expects you to do something about all three of them as you can. So as a baseline... The Bible says take care of your family. He says, like, if there's someone in your family who's going hungry, if you're not working to provide for them, you're worse than an unbeliever. He says that in Timothy. And he wasn't even talking about you're not doing it for your kids, because I think that would even count. He's talking about, like, your mother. Like, you, you, there's a widow, you know, your father died, your mom's a widow, and you're expecting the church to take care of the widow, and you're not providing for it. He says, you are acting worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so here's baseline. You'll take care of your family. That's expected of you. Okay, But that's nothing uniquely Christian about that. That's just God put it in your heart to live in a society that's the way you live. Unbelievers do this. But then what makes, like, so that's, so baseline. Now what's above and beyond? In Galatians 6, it says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, okay, helpful, thank you, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Okay, so comprehensive statement, everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Okay, so that's your next sphere. You're going to do good to everyone, family, then the church, those who are in your Christian sphere, those that we call truly brothers and sisters. Take care of them. And then, society. So, as God shows you the need, as you have opportunity, you're supposed to be doing good for those in your church family. That's what James was referring to. If someone's in your midst and they're hungry and you're not taking care of them, you're a dead church. Okay, then as God shows you need, you're supposed to do good for people in your society, even your enemies. 
Think, think the Good Samaritan loving the enemies. Think of Jesus loving his enemies. Now, when I was originally thinking through this, I was tempted to say, as God shows you need and as you have the resources. And that's a biblical statement, by the way, because opportunity would involve both having the need in front of you and having the resources to meet it. And, and to, be, to be sure, Paul tells the Corinthians, plan to meet needs. Plan to meet needs. Week, week by week, did God give you abundance? Then set aside the abundance to share with others who are in need. But sometimes you'll find you're, you're the one in need. Totally fine. You can be in need. Better pray that God is providing someone who's going to help you. Right? He says, plan for it as you have the ability. But the reason I say, I'm, but here's why it's tempting to say, and you have the resources. I think what Jesus is showing in this parable, that you may not think you have the resources, but you have something, a little bit, even a little bit, and somehow Jesus is able to make the small resources come on top. Like He's able to multiply your resources in such a way that somehow the need is met above and beyond the way you ever thought it was going to be possible for it to be fulfilled. Disciples did not think they had the resources. Jesus is proving he is God and he can make it work. If God asks you to meet a need, he'll provide for you what you need to meet it. And it may feel crazy. Like, I'm overextending myself. Or, I'm not sure this is enough, but he's able to provide and even provide for you. Twelve baskets left over. He'll provide for you too. Now, as a <coughs> middle-class white male in America with a good job and insurance and all that great stuff, this is not easy for me to hear. Right? My initial assumption is that I'm doing it right. Like, I walk through life thinking, I've got this all figured out. I think the disciples thought they were doing it right. You know, Jesus in the day, no food. God sent them home. But then Jesus confronts them and says, no. Go a little further. Go a little farther. Jesus was challenging them, and he was asking them to join in his task. And so I, I read these scriptures, and so... It's easy to measure your success when you're looking at yourself. Like, I'm doing great. If, you, if yourself is your own reflection, I, I look pretty good. And even sometimes it's good if you look at other people. But look at Jesus. Look at his compassion. Look at his mercy. And understand that you are part of the body of Christ. And he expects you to behave accordingly. So am I really doing it? Or am I just full of good intentions? Am I full of good intentions and I don't lift a finger, barely move a dime? Okay, maybe a hundred bucks. <laughs> maybe. Like, am I really actually doing it? Sometimes I think the needs don't exist, but God reminds his people the poor will always be with you. The poor will always be with you. Um, as a mathematician, geek person, I'm always thinking like economics and like how's, how can you like how can you change economics so like there's no poor in your midst? God says, yeah, good luck. The poor will always be with you. Until my kingdom comes, it's just part of the sinful curse. The poor will always be with you. There will always be needs. 
My other assumption is that I'm free from the love of money. Or I'm free from the praise of men. Or I'm free from the love of comforts. Or name the thing I think I'm free from. And that's when Scripture just keeps coming in and chipping at it and chipping at it and chipping at it. Like when you start feeling pricked by these passages, it's probably a good sign because something might be wrong or you have inordinate desires. These things are not bad in and of themselves. But then when you make them the biggest thing, then yeah, it's a problem. And you usually know because when people start poking at it, you get mad. Don't mess with this. Don't mess with it. You're mad at your kids because why? You can't do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inordinate desire. The other thing I think, I think we all think this at some point, is when you run into people who are in misery or in a bad situation, you think, what a waste of time. What a money pit. I'm just going to enable them. Besides, they probably brought it on themselves. But the funny thing about Jesus' mercy is he gives us mercy precisely because we brought ruin on ourselves. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness. Not because we were trying and somehow elevated ourselves to the status of deserving poor. Not because we met him halfway, but because of his own mercy. Jesus came into this world to be with us, to suffer like us, to die for us. When he was here, he preached the kingdom of God, freedom from sin, reconciliation to God, He demonstrated concern not just about people's souls, but their physical well-being. He was concerned with the material and the immaterial. He's concerned about the whole person. He offers redemption for the soul, freedom for the spirit, and eventually resurrection of the body. Have you experienced this mercy? If so, you will display it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. How? How? By entering our lives, he redeems us from lawlessness. He pulls us away from lawlessness. And he purifies us. He cleans us. He changes our hearts. And he produces for himself a people a people for his own possession, a people here on this earth passionate and zealous for good works. And it starts with experiencing it. You truly know, appreciate Christ's mercy in your own life. Because if you think you're okay, if you think you've got it all made, if you think Jesus kind of just bumped you over a little bit, if you, if you really do not see your sin as self-destruction, then you will not appreciate Christ's mercy. He says, I came for the sick. Are you sick? So, 
It's going to flip you around. You'll look at those who made a mess of their lives and know that there's no one beyond the mercy of God because that was you. You'll be moved to compassion in your guts. You will want to lift misery. You will want to bring hope to this world. You want the power of the gospel to go out and redeem people from their sin, from their poverty, from injustice. You want to magnify God in the lives of people because that is ultimately what they need. We will love people just like our Savior loved people. There's a reason why Christianity, when it reaches cultures, when it breaks in, the first place it usually goes is the poor. The poor are the ones who accept it. The poor are the first ones to benefit from the gospel. It's usually true. Not always true, but usually true. There's a reason why Christians have been passionate about education, making sure people can read, because they need to read the word of life. There's a reason why Christians have always been passionate about orphanages, why they've been passionate about ending slavery, who have been passionate about ending human trafficking. There's a reason why when the plagues were ravishing Europe, people were fleeing and Christians were staying at their own risk. They loved people. And they were not going to let them die in their own squalor. They were going to be there for people. So we are willing to trust God. He's working this in our lives. If you are a believer, he is working this in your lives. And he's putting opportunities in your life to love and serve people. And don't act with fear. Act with confidence that what he calls you to do, he's going to provide the means to do it. You need to have, be on the lookout for it. He makes us a community of people a group of people, a body of Christ together. He's giving grace to each of us to serve other people so that we as a congregation are empowered to do it. So maybe we're not just called to do it by ourselves, but maybe we are. But we're called to do it as a congregation. A church who's doing it right will be missed in a society if it's pulled out. They talk about and there's many, many examples of this, but since he's kind of famous, then I'll just bring him up. Charles Spurgeon, who the newspapers cared very little for Charles Spurgeon's teaching. But they certainly liked the church's outreach to the community. Orphanages, huge orphanage, um, food banks, education centers. They felt it in the town. So when Charles Spurgeon died, even though they didn't care much for his teaching, there were a lot of people at his funeral grateful that Charles Spurgeon was around. It's stuff like that that adorns the gospel. They had conversion after conversion after conversion after conversion. I don't think it's just because of Charles Spurgeon's preaching. I mean, that's the thing that kind of lives on because books. 
I think it's because they were a light in that city and they glorified their Father who is in heaven. So as we come to communion, we recognize that Christ is our, our true bread, that he satisfies us, he provides for us. And when you have the abundance of Jesus Christ, honestly, you don't need much more. It breaks the power of these things in your life. It, it pushes you from lawlessness and makes you zealous for good works. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He saved us, and he was an example to us. And we're asked to throw off the sin that entangles us. And press for the joy that is set before us. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. We're heaven bound. Heaven on earth, by the way. Heaven on earth. So if the ushers would come forward and the congregation, worship team. Hallelujah, 
what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Let us look to Jesus who drew us into the sphere of his love. And people who are his enemies now sit at his table in fellowship and joy. What a great love is this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for wisdom. And we ask for guidance. Lord, what is it you would have for us to do? Each of us as individuals, Lord, what do you have for us to do? Lord, and as a congregation, what is it you would have for us to do? Lord, we pray that you would make that ever clear. Give us the faith and the boldness to step out and do it. Lord, so that the gospel will be adorned. We understand that the gospel is more than just lifting physical misery, but is not less, God. So I pray Lord, that we would be a people zealous for good works. Lord, that we would make us, conform us into the image of your Son, who gave up the glories of heaven, the fellowship of the Trinity, and took on this flesh that got sick, that hurt, that was hungry, that got emotionally exhausted. Lord, he joined us, lived with us, died for us, and is transforming us. Lord, make us like Jesus Christ. Lord, that people would truly know who you are. Lord, they see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. God, we ask this would be true of us. So again, we pray, give us wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.